have your Bibles with you, we are turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, <clears throat> because uh, the church is going through this letter to the Corinthians. One of the problems, of course, we have is that we seem to go through 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians doesn't quite get through us sometimes. And for some reason, the leaders of the church have uh, slowed down a little bit here in 1 Corinthians 14, and in the three weeks uh, I'm scheduled to be with you, last week, today, and next week, we are spending that time in 1 Corinthians 14. It is a lot better to sow seeds than it is to pull weeds. But sometimes if you're going to get growth, you've got to pull some weeds so the seeds can grow. And it seems to me that in 1 Corinthians, we have a book that is addressed to a church saying there are some weeds that need to be pulled. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you will know that there was all kinds of division. There were moral problems. There were legal problems. There were problems of carnality. And then in chapter 7, the apostle turns from addressing reports that he had heard about the problems at Corinth and starts answering some questions that the Corinthians had. And so as you go to chapter 7, he addresses questions on Christian marriage. And then when you get into chapter 8 and 9, uh, he and 10, he addresses questions on Christian freedom, liberty. Then when you get into chapter 11, right through to chapter 14, he addresses issues with respect to Christian meetings. And that's the passage that we are in today. It stretches from chapter 11, verse 2, to chapter 14, verse 40. And in that section on Christian meetings, you will find he addresses three issues. In chapter 11, 2 through 16, he addresses the place of women in Christian meetings. And then in verse 17 through to the end of the chapter, he addresses the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And then in chapter 12, right through to the end of 14, he addresses the problem of tongues. So in that whole section on the question regarding Christian meetings, those are the three issues he deals with. The place of women, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and the problem of tongues. And we said last week, if you were with us, that the three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, give an indication as to what the problem really was in the church at Corinth. In chapter 12, it seems evident that they had placed a distorted emphasis on the gift of tongues. And for that reason, three times in chapter 12, when Paul is talking about the gifts, he places the gift of tongues and interpretation last. Three times in one chapter, so the Corinthians will get the message that they have placed a distorted emphasis on this gift, 
believing that everyone should have it, and Paul gives a resounding negative to that proposition. Well, when you come to chapter 13, he talks about love. Because the problem at Corinth was that they came behind in no gift, according to chapter 1, verse 7, but they were way, way behind when it came to love. And so he spends chapter 13, one of the loveliest chapters in the New Testament, wedged between chapter 12 and chapter 13. So it's not just a poem. It is an essential piece of living skill in the local church. Between the giftedness of chapter 12 and the function of chapter 14 is this lovely section on love. And he says, Though I have the tongues of men and of angels, have not love, I am nothing. I'm just a resounding symbol or a clanging gong. And uh, when he comes to chapter 13, he's saying to the people, Listen, it might be true that you are gifted, but it is way more important for you to be godly. Now, if you put giftedness and godliness together, you'll avoid the problems of chapter 14. So they have a distasteful expression of the gift of tongues. They need to learn the way of love. And because they have not yet learned the value of love, they have a disorderly exhibition of the gift of tongues in chapter 14, and that's what the apostle is addressing. Righto, we're breaking in this morning in our reading to verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Brothers, stop thinking like children. Imagine having to say that. Brothers, stop thinking like children. You know the reason he said that? They were kids. I don't know if you've ever tried to remember what it was like being a child. But when you're three or four, the whole world revolves around you. When you're hungry, you want some food. And when you're upset, you want mommy. And uh, when you're bored, you want some toys to play with. And if you haven't got a toy to play with that suits you, you'll flog it off your brother, your sister, or the little boy across the road. But the whole world revolves around number one. That's just part of being a child. And then as a child slowly grows through the teenage years into adulthood, they slowly realize there are other people in the world apart from them. And that, in fact, if the world is to function in any kind of reasonable way, they have to play a role thinking about the good of others and not just their own needs. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul starts in verse 20 and said, Brothers, stop thinking like children. You're approaching this matter of gifts as if it's all about you and the fun you have with the gift. If you really want to understand what you need to do is you need to say, it's not about me and the gift, it's about the gift and the body. 
And I have to take into account not the way I feel so much as I do the good of the local assembly. And so he says in verse 20, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Verse 21, In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture, and I have to say a critically important one, but it's one that doesn't get a lot of careful attention in the evangelical world today. But it needs it. I'm not surprised it doesn't get a lot of attention because it's a very difficult passage to interpret, as you will find uh, as we go through. But it's an important one, and in this passage, Paul uh, first of all, confirms the nature of tongues, and then he talks about the purpose of tongues, and then he goes on to put some regulations on tongues, and those are the three issues that he raises here in the section chapter 14. So we want to turn, first of all, to the nature of tongues, and you will find verse 21 to be the focal point of the passage. It's a critical piece of the whole argument. If you put your finger on verse 21 in your Bible, you will find, if you've got the NIV, that the scripture is indented. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12. If you've got the New American Standard Bible, you will find that they have put it in capital letters to tell you, here's a quote from the Old Testament. If you've got the New King James Version, they have not only indented it like the NIV, but they've put it in italics as well to let you know that this is a quote from the Old Testament. And the quote is absolutely critical to the argument that Paul is giving. I want you to see the connection before we explore it. 
Have a look at verse 21. You have the quote, and he's talking about men of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners. And then in verse 22, you find these words in the NIV, tongues then are a sign. Now, when he says tongues then are a sign, he is basing what he is now saying on the truth of Isaiah 28. If you've got the NASB, it will say, so then tongues are a sign. If you've got the New King James Version, it will say, therefore. If you've got the New Living Translation, it will say, so you see. But here's the point. Verse 22 connects directly to verse 21. Now, there's a reason for that. And that's because Paul is not talking about tongues in general. He is linking the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14 with the tongues of Isaiah 28, and he is putting them together. In other words, what Paul is saying is if you want to understand what tongues are about in the New Testament church, you need to understand Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 because that's what we are talking about. So Paul has written it deliberately here for us to understand. All right. Now, having said that, we go to the nature of tongues. Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. There are four reasons that I personally believe the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 was a known language with nouns, with verbs, and with grammatical structure. I personally am not of the opinion that we're talking about a private prayer language here. I am not of the opinion that this is ecstatic language. I feel that the burden of evidence when we weigh up all the issues in 1 Corinthians 14 would lead us to believe that the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14 are the same tongues in Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19, and they're the same tongues as in Israel's history quoted in Isaiah chapter 28. They are real, known languages. If you were to go back to Isaiah 28, uh, the Lord is uh, indicating that the nation of Israel, who have run amok in their rebellion and sinfulness, are coming under judgment. And Isaiah the prophet is talking to them about that judgment when they say to themselves, who does Isaiah think he is? Does he think he's speaking to a bunch of children? Does he think that we're all dumb? Does he think that we're all naughty boys? And they disregard the message of Isaiah, only to be informed by Isaiah that because they have disregarded his message of judgment, God will send an invading army into Israel to discipline the nation and to inflict wounds and pain and suffering to get their attention and to call them to heal. 
And the nation that comes in the first place is Assyria. In the second place, it's Babylonia. These are nations that do not speak the language of Israel. They are therefore men of strange tongues and they speak with the lips of foreigners. In other words, these people are speaking Assyrian. Now, Assyrian is a known language. That's what the prophet Isaiah is talking about. And it's interesting that Paul, out of all of Isaiah's prophecies, picks that one out and puts it right here in the middle of the discussion on tongues. We are talking about real languages in Isaiah 28, the Assyrian language in particular. Now, when you get to this word tongues, it's used 20 times in chapter 12, 13, and 14, but it's used another 30 times in the New Testament. It's sometimes used of language. It's occasionally used of the physical organ, the tongue, as James speaks of it, but it is never, ever used in the New Testament, be it in these chapters or the rest of the New Testament. It is never used of ecstatic speech. It is always used of a real known language. But you will also notice from verse 27 that if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. Now that tells me that this is not an ecstatic utterance. That tells me that these people are in full control of what they are doing and that the utterance can be limited to a number, it can be limited to its execution, and it can be limited by the availability of interpretation. So we're not to get the idea that this gift was a gift that suddenly overtook the person and was uttered uncontrollably in some mystical kind of utterance. It is talking about the real gift of languages that can be used and can be controlled. But you will also find that when you get to uh, the book of Acts, they were speaking in real languages in chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 19. Now in chapter 19 in Acts, Paul is in Ephesus. And he comes up to some of John the Baptist's disciples and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard of such a thing. And so he speaks to them of the Lord Jesus, and then he lays his hands upon them, prays for them, and they speak in tongues. The apostle Paul is there with his hands on them while they are speaking in tongues. Now, those tongues in Acts 19 are the same tongues in Acts 10 and the same tongues in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, they are real languages. Every man heard the apostles speaking in their own dialect. So if the tongues of Acts 2 are real languages, so must the tongues of Acts 10 be, so must the tongues of Acts 19 be. Now, if the tongues of Acts 19 are real languages and Paul was there, it seems to me uh, that he would naturally tell us if these tongues were different. He would naturally say, oh, those tongues when I was in Ephesus are different to these tongues here, but he doesn't. But more than that, when Luke writes the book of Acts after the date of 1 Corinthians, 
He doesn't make any differentiation either. So both Luke and Paul lead us to believe that the phenomena of Acts and the phenomena of 1 Corinthians are the same. And it seems to me the burden of evidence is these are real known languages. But there is one more thing that leads me to believe these are real languages in 1 Corinthians 14, and that is the word interpret. And you're going to find it five times in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That word interpret is probably better translated translate, because that's exactly what the word means. It means to translate. You'll find it in John chapter 9, verse 7, when Jesus said to the man, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which being translated means sent. You'll find it again in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which being translated means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You find it again in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. There was a disciple at Joppa named Tabitha, which being translated means Dorcas. So this word being translated is the same word that the NIV uses here to interpret. It actually means to translate. And the reason that they can translate the language of Jesus on the cross is because it was a real language. The language, the reason they can translate the name of, of uh, Tabitha into Dorcas is because these are real languages. They can be translated. They have structures of speech and grammar. They have nouns. They have verbs and all the rest of it. You can translate that. Now, come Christmas time, we'll start singing carols, usually. And one of the carols we might sing is, Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly. And if I had time, I could come to my Tongan brothers and sisters and ask them to translate that into Tongan, and they could do it because they have a language, and English is a language, and because you've got two languages, you can find equivalents and translate. But if we kept singing the carol, we'd get to the second line. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Fa la 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 la. Now, what does fa la 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 mean? Well, your guess is as good as mine. But I've been singing that number for 60 years, and I still don't know what that means. And the reason I don't know what it means is because it isn't a language. So if I said to my Tongan friends, translate that into Tongan, well, they couldn't do that. Because no one in their right mind knows what fa la 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 means. Other than that, it probably comes from la la land. <laughs> so what we are saying here is when it comes to interpretation, you're really talking about a translation of a real language. And that's why I believe the issue at 1 Corinthians is actually about uh, real languages, not about an ecstatic utterance. Because the quote from Isaiah 28 
is a quote about real languages. So far, so good. But the passage tells us a little bit more about tongues than just the nature of them. It tells us about the purpose of them here in uh, verse 21. Now, you know anything about language at all, you will know that language began with God. He talked with Adam and Eve, gave Adam and Eve a language where they could communicate with themselves. And right up until the time of Babel, humanity was moving en masse as one homogeneous group, one nationality with one language. It wasn't until they got to Babel that they decided to disobey God and rebel. And they said, we are not moving out across the face of the earth. We're staying right here. And in order to facilitate our staying right here, we're building a tower so high it reaches up to the heavens. We don't know if that means the the bird heavens or the space heavens or the heaven of heavens, but it would be a rallying point to stop the people moving out. So however far they went, they could still see the tower and that's where they stayed. That was home. In response to that, God says, no, I said to you people to move out. And so he comes down in judgment at Babel and he affects the dialects that the people are speaking so they can no longer communicate with one another and that forces them to live in different sections. Because one day Bill said to Fred, pass me the hammer. And instead of passing him the hammer, he got a dead squirrel. And so Fred didn't like Bill anymore. They couldn't work together on the city because you can't do much to the city with a dead squirrel. So they couldn't work together. A reason they couldn't work together is they couldn't communicate. Now, if you can't communicate and work together, you can't live together. And eventually they spread out to various pockets on the planet that they claimed for themselves. And this was caused by God coming down and confusing their language and separating them off into different language groups. It's interesting that the first appearance of real languages is an act of divine judgment. An act of divine judgment. I want you to come with me to the Old Testament now and put your finger in Deuteronomy Chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you know anything about Deuteronomy 28, 29, uh, you will know that this is one of the most important passages of the Old Testament. And to those of you who are trying to understand the Bible and understand the Old Testament, this to me seems one of the key passages of Scripture. If you don't get this down, you will misunderstand the whole of Old Testament history. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68, God uh, gives the curses and the blessings to Israel. If they obey the Mosaic Covenant then God will bless them physically, financially, agriculturally, politically, militarily. 
And you have that in the first 14 verses. But if they disobey, then my gosh, uh, they're going to experience the curses. And the curses take up not 14 verses, but they go all the way from Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, right through to verse 68. So you got about three to four times more curses than you have blessings. Now, among the curses, put your finger on verse 45. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and to your descendants forever. Note the words, they will be a sign and a wonder to you. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Then look at verse 49. This is critical. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. A fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you're destroyed. But the key point is, I'm going to bring a nation whose language you will not understand. That's part of the judgment. Now go over to the prophecy of Isaiah. And let's put our finger on Isaiah chapter 28, where the quote is in 1 Corinthians 14. Isaiah 28, verse 11. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So what's God going to do to rebellious Israel? He is going to speak to them with foreign lips and strange tongues. He's going to bring a nation to invade them. Foreigners are going to come. And instead of hearing their national language, they're going to hear a language they do not understand. And when they do, they know that they are under the judgment of God. They're under the discipline of God Almighty. That's what it was all about. Go over to Isaiah 33, if you will. Put your finger on verse 19. Here again, he predicts the same thing. So what God promised in the covenant in Deuteronomy 28, 49, you are now seeing in Israel's history. Here is another reference, Isaiah 33, verse 19. You will see these arrogant people no more, those people of an obscure speech with their strange, incomprehensible Now go over to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. Put your finger on verse 15. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Now, what am I saying here? What I'm saying here is this. 
Whenever you get into Israel's history and you start to discover the sudden appearance of foreign languages, strange tongues, unusual speech that the Jewish people did not understand, you knew they were under the judgment of God. That was very clear. This was not ecstatic speech. This was real language. It was the language of the Assyrians. It was the language of the Babylonians. It would be the language of the Romans. But whenever Israel came to that point of rebellion, then God said, okay, I'm going to whistle for Assyria. They're going to come in and you're going to be overrun with Assyrians. You're going to go to the shops and all you're going to hear is these Assyrian invaders speaking the Assyrian language. And you will know that you're for the woodshed. Very soon, I'm going to take you off to Assyria. And very soon, I'm going to take you off to Babylonia, where you will hear nothing but a foreign language and a strange tongue. It was a sign of the judgment of God. So when you come to the book of Acts and uh, the Lord Jesus has been crucified, on the third day he rose from the dead, And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and the 12 apostles are speaking in foreign languages. And if you're Jewish at all, and Jerusalem was filled with Jews from all over the diaspora, you would go, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. I know exactly what this is about. This is a message of judgment. And it was. The Lord Jesus had said to them, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew chapter 23, 37 to 39. Your house is left to you desolate. Not one stone, he said, would be left upon the other. The whole temple would be ripped down. And the disciples said, what? Jesus said, you mark my words. Not one stone will be left upon another. Well, when the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes as the gift of the Father, that the Lord Jesus has sent. Apostles are speaking in foreign tongues and all of the Jews from all over the diaspora heard them speak in their own language. Now that episode is followed by the speech of Peter. And Peter says, you boys are for the high jump. You have crucified the Lord of glory. They said, we what? You have crucified the Lord of glory. And the one you put on the cross, God has raised from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ. And at that point, the Jews are very worried because the last thing you want to do when you murder someone is have them come back from the grave. You don't want that to happen. That will really ruin your whole day. And Jesus has not only come back from the grave, but he has ascended to the Father's right hand, the place of honor and power, and he has been made both Lord and Christ. And they got the screaming tatas. 
they got the screaming willies and they said to Peter, what will we do? And he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and save yourselves from this crooked and perverse generation. Be baptized. Now, why did they have to be saved from that crooked and perverse generation? Because judgment was coming. Judgment in the form of the invasion of Titus. I'm going to walk right in and rip that temple to smithereens and murder hundreds upon thousands of Jewish people and they would be left in the streets dead. Now, what Peter is saying to the Jewish people is if you repent and are baptized, you will save yourselves from the judgment that is coming on this generation. How would they save themselves from that judgment? Well, getting baptized would get them unpopular. And the Jews that were alive would say, get out of here. And the persecution would start. And they would start moving out and out and out. And their persecution became their salvation because when Titus walked in, they were nowhere to be seen. They had already gone with their lives. Now, when you come to the church at Corinth, it seems to me that we are still with the same material that we have in Acts chapter 2. So not only is the nature of tongues the same, but the purpose of tongues is the same. And that's why you read in verse 22, tongues then, or better rendered, the tongues then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's exactly the way it was in the Old Testament. That's exactly the way it was on the day of Pentecost. And it is still that way in Corinth. Why? Because this letter was written before Titus arrived. The judgment had not yet come, but God is still giving to the nation this sign You better repent before the judgment comes. You better repent before the judgment comes. So tongues, it seems to me, fulfilled the same purpose in Corinth as it did in Acts, and that is a warning of divine judgment through foreign invasion. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Not for Gentile unbelievers but for Jewish ones because Jews, according to 1 Corinthians 1.22, look for a sign. Now, here's the sign. These people are speaking real foreign languages and warning of judgment to come. Now, it seems from verse 23 that we've got a contradiction. And with this, we'll go real fast. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? And you say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought tongues were a sign for unbelievers. Now you're saying if unbelievers come in and hear you, they'll think you're out of your mind. That's a contradiction. Let's just slow down. What he's saying is, The real tongues that were spoken, real languages, they're a sign for unbelieving Jews. Corinth was full of them. Jewish businessmen, the people, according to Acts 18, who founded the church in Corinth were Jews. Paul spent a whole lot of his time ministering in the synagogue in Corinth. Now, what do you mean? 
Tongues are a sign for unbelievers, but when they come in, they'll think you're mad. The answer, it seems to me, is this. The real gift of tongues, speaking the judgment of God, is legitimate. Verse 23. But if someone comes in and all of you are speaking at the same time in uninterpreted tongues, it is going to be total chaos. And the people are going to say, you're out of your mind. This cannot be real. This cannot be true. You're crazy. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while you're prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare and fall down before God. So what happens? When you come together, one, two, three at the most are to speak in tongues, one at a time and only if there's an interpreter. Because if you don't follow that, you're not going to make sense to the believers or the unbelievers. Religious experience is not for you and me just to feel happy. It is for the good of other people. It's for the good of other people. And that's why the apostle then gives the regulations. Two, three at the most. One at a time, not all of this stuff where you're all speaking together, singing together, praying together. None of that. And only if there is an interpreter. Otherwise, people are going to think you're mad. Now, what does this mean to me as we come to land? Just a couple of things. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In your thinking, think like adults. Or, if you want to put it another way, in your thinking, in your understanding, be adults. In your understanding, be adults. This becomes a challenge to me. When it comes to my own faith, how much do I understand? How much of my faith is intelligent? How much of my faith is based out of personal conviction from this book? Or is it something I just gathered from my background and my home life, and I'm really as prejudiced as a Muslim? Because it isn't based on knowledge or understanding at all. It's based on background and prejudice and upbringing. And the call of the Spirit today in the Word is this. Brothers and sisters, in your understanding, do not be children. In your understanding, be adults, informed, intelligent, and responsible with your faith. And that becomes a challenge to me because as an individual Christian, I spend my whole time trying to understand intelligently my faith. I'm trying to live my life others-centered and not me-centered. My faith is not so much about me as it is about how I touch the lives of others. Let me ask this question. If you're an elder or a leader in this church, 
What is there in place so that we as believers can be adults in our thinking? Let me ask this question. How long have you, as an individual, how long have you been a believer? And what maturity have you seen occurring in your own life? You know, we go to a reunion and we find all these people who got a lot older than us all of a sudden. And we go up to one another and we say after years apart, you haven't changed a bit. And we feel so proud. You know, they still recognize me. You haven't changed a bit. What a great shame if that were to happen spiritually. And after 10 years at Hukunui Road Church, you said, I haven't changed a bit. Not a bit, not a smidgen. I'm as young and as immature as I ever was. Because I have not made it a goal to be an adult in my understanding. God give us a hunger to grow in knowledge, in love, and in intelligence. Father, we pause now to acknowledge that we are dependent upon you for all that we have and are. That includes our faith, our understanding of the Lord Jesus. We're dependent upon you for spiritual growth. We're dependent upon you for progress. And we ask now that you will enrich our lives by the power of your Spirit and give us a hunger to grow in understanding. Oh, Lord, uh, we are so dependent upon you and we cry out to you. Give us the hunger. Give us the desire. Give us the discipline to know your word and to know the truth and to understand so that we will be mature believers governed by love in all that we know. We long to honor you. We long to be glorifying to you. We do not want to be troublesome children. We want to be adults who serve you and love you and honor you. And help us understand, Father, that even in our private walk, your glory is at stake in the way we live and behave. Now give us your help, we beg, in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.